Lot of both, eh? Fantastic. Okay. Well done, Angie. Those uh, jewels tripped me up something chronic in the I-15. So, um, well done for that. So, we're here. There's, a lot, there's some breathing of relief going on from some people. It's been a joy and a trial for many people to go through this. But, wow. Revelation of Jesus Christ. A message from Jesus about Jesus. Reality revealed, telling people what's been going on, what is going on, and what will go on. And what was brilliant last week was that Lisa told us the story about the bride and the, and the wedding preparations that went into it. And like any good romantic story, what's the ending meant to be? Well done. And they lived happily ever after. That's what we want to see, isn't it? That's maybe what we want. They lived happily ever after. The marriage of the lamb and the bride. Notice that the church is called the wife of the lamb in this. It's the marriage. In fact, it's more than the marriage. We're getting to look at the honeymoon and beyond. This is great stuff. So as we come to the end of Revelation, just a few pointers to remember. That this is a letter and it was a letter to seven churches. Seven churches way, way back a number of weeks ago, we looked at the different things that they'd been through. Some of them had done well, some of them had not done so well. Some of them were being persecuted for the name of Christ. They were, they were owning up to it, they were doing stuff for Jesus, and people didn't like it, and so they were being persecuted. But there's a whole bunch that Jesus was saying, listen, you're not up to scratch, you're messing around with idols. You are being spiritually promiscuous. So these seven churches, they sum up the state of the church, I think, throughout the entirety of history, sometimes at the same time, both persecuted and promiscuous. But to the persecuted, this, seven, this, this book, this letter is a message of hope. This letter is a message of hope and encouragement to those who are being promiscuous, even in their Christian faith. Remember, this book is written to Christians primarily. It's a challenge about judgment. Put it bluntly, it's a spiritual kick up the backside that they needed. And one phrase sums up the message that is heard by these people. It's a message that's repeated in the epilogue of this chapter. It's always good to go to the end of the book to check out what's being said. And, and the message is simply this, I am coming soon. So to the persecuted church, that rings notes of hallelujah, of rescue, of hope. I am coming soon. To those who are messing around, I am coming soon. Get your act in order. And we shouldn't be uh, complacent about the fact that soon includes 2,000 years of history. We are closer to Jesus' return chronologically than whenever he ascended into heaven. We're getting closer all the time. He is coming back soon. And we've looked at that in some detail. He is coming back soon. This church that he's written to, that John has written to, these seven churches, they've heard and they've seen what will happen to all God's enemies, the empires and tyrants, the evil, the sinful, sin itself, Satan, the Antichrist, false prophets, tempters and deceivers, and death itself will be destroyed. And now they hear about the wedding, the hurdle that's overcome in every good romance movie and story, the hurdle that needs to be overcome, and the couple are now together, 
and we hear about the happy ever after. Yeah. So the voice from the throne, first time speaking so boldly says this, I am making everything new. Now this phrase, new, kainos is the Greek word, um, has confused people a lot because they don't really know exactly how best to translate it apart from new. So what does that mean? Well, here's some suggestions. Could it possibly be plan A hasn't worked, so let's go to plan B, guys. Or maybe, and this is a bit of an insight into um, my sermon preps, whenever I'm, I, I, I preach from one kind of A3 sheet, I'm not sure yet because you'll, you'll cry at my writing, um, but before this, there are pages and pages of things that are written, scrambled up, put aside more, and, and there's, there's a lot. It's not like those waste paper bins of I've tried, failed, let's try again, another clean sheet, let's try again. It's not continuous like that. And it's not like, do you remember the movie Groundhog Day? Where, um, if you don't know it, what happens, this guy who's a weatherman in America, he's a bit of an obnoxious character, and um, Puxatawney Phil, which is a, a groundhog, which is a big rat, um, comes out of its hidey hole in the beginning of February, and if he sees a shadow, it's going to be, I don't know, bad weather, I don't know what it's going to be. But in this story, this guy, who's also called Phil, has to keep on reliving the same day again and again and again until he gets it right. So is that what it means, that God is perpetually trying to do, go over and over again until we get it right? No. I want to share something really exciting with you. I got a new phone. Can I show you a picture of it? Are you sure? You'll be jealous. It's brilliant. It's got a cracking screen. Not to mean cracking screen. It's got a great screen. Um, the sound quality is amazing. The reception is fantastic. Do you want to see a photo of it? Here it comes. There. I got a new mobile phone. Do you remember that one? <laughs> that was new to me. That is actually is the phone, my first mobile phone. It was brand new. Wasn't it cutting edge? And now we look at it and it's a bit of a dinosaur. Because new becomes old very quickly. Novelty wears off, doesn't it? Newness fades, scratches occur, and new models with even more buttons, or fewer perhaps, appear. There's something upgraded. The thing is, newness, novelty, it all wears off because it is a consequence of time. Whenever I was doing physics in A-level, we were taught by a guy called Trevor Seals. He was a big, butch, kind of old-fashioned teacher, and, and first day in physics, he went, right, boys, what is time? We went, I think it was about a quarter past two, sir. He did not find that funny. <laughs> what is time? And we came up with suggestions after suggestion about this. To every one of the suggestions, he said, no, stupid boy. <laughs> it was really fun. And then he said, time is a measure of decay. Time is a measure of decay. Happy fellow, wasn't he? But it's true, isn't it? We count down. As soon as we're born, we know where we're going. You know, it's that kind of, as soon as something's new, it becomes old. Things fade. They tend to disorder scientifically in some ways. We are talking about a new definition of newness here, where the newness never fades, where the novelty never wears off. Because actually, if we are in eternity, there is no time. And if there's no time, there's no decay. 
And we're told there's no decay, there's no death. There's nothing which causes death and decay. It's almost like the Lord has pressed the reset button. You know that factory reset that you're always scared to press in case you lose everything? But it's so much more than the factory reset of eternity. So much more. There is a new heaven because the old heaven has been polluted by Satan. There is a new earth. Unlike those people who think we're trying to escape this evil earth to get to a really nice heaven. That's based not in the Bible, but Greek platonic dualism. Fancy that. That's a good word, isn't it? That's what that's based on. The earth is so evil and heaven's so good. God says a new heaven and a new earth is needed. There's a new Jerusalem. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you see Jerusalem is a pretty awful place at times. A place of, of idolatry, a place where lots of horrible things happen. There is a new everything. This is the resurrection of the cosmos we're talking about. Jesus was the first fruits of, the, of creation, the recreation, when he rose from the dead. And notice that he was recognizable, but so much more than what he was. When we think of Revelation, certainly people um, want to answer this question. I've been asked this question a number of times, even yesterday in conversation with my daughter. What will heaven be like? Don't lie to me and say you've never thought it. <laughs> what will heaven be like? Well, the biblical understanding of heaven or heavens was manifold. There was the idea of the sky was the heavens. There was the firmament, which was like the stars in the sky. That was heavens as well. In fact, different levels of heaven. Earth was a heaven. The sky was a heaven. Then there was God's space, which was a heaven, a spiritual um, entity. But when we talk about heaven, let's be honest, that's what, this is what we think of, isn't it? Clouds. <laughs> why? You think of white, fluffy clouds. An angelic people floating around with robes billowing in the wind and wings and blonde ringlets and harps and stuff like that. It's like a perpetual Philadelphia advert, isn't it? <laughs> we want to know what heaven will be like. We want to know ahead of time. Whenever we book, um, we've booked holiday cottages before. If you go on the, the website, you get lots of information about the place you're going to, what you can do around the area. Then you get pictures, uh, information about the house. You get pictures of the house, every single room from the best angle to make it look bigger than it really is. You get all these pictures. In fact, then you get its postcode. So you can put it into Google Maps. See the advert there? Um, that's for Ian. And you can zoom in on it and see the footprint of the land. In fact, you can actually put a little yellow man on the computer. You can see actually on the screen what the house looks like, the streets and the shops. Walk down the road. Oh, look, there's a boulangerie. Brilliant. We want to know ahead of time what something's going to be like. Um, a little while ago, there was a movie which came out and a book about a little boy called Carlton Burpo. And uh, he, his story is that he was dead. And during this time, whenever he was on the operating table, he had what people call an out-of-body experience, a near-death experience, where he was in the presence of Jesus. And he came back and he knew things that he shouldn't have known. And he's written this book. There's a movie. There's a course. There's a sequel. I don't know how to do that. Um, but lots of people become Christians off the back of it, so fair play. But I read some near-death experience things. Oh my goodness, there's some weird stuff out there. Some really weird near-death experiences. And some of them have been debunked scientifically. Some of them were just false. In fact, at the same time as this came out, there was another lad, published a book, did a movie, all the things, and then he went, actually, I made it all up. 
which kind of damaged things somewhat. Or maybe some of these stories, I even talked to someone after the first service, who have an experience that they can't explain. And actually, some of the things that I've heard and read are really quite dodgy. And I wonder whether the enemy likes to whip up a few little myths in people's minds. So they come back and say, everyone has a good time. And there's no judgment. There's no God. But actually, even if the Old Testament and the New Testament pictures of heaven are accurate, even if people do go down a tunnel, which, you know, whatever, this is a new heaven that we're going to be part of. This is a new heaven, a new earth. Often people go to Revelation to find out what is heaven like. And whilst we're told, absolutely, whilst true and trustworthy, this is not an accurate statement about what heaven looks like. These are not the building plans of eternity. So I've got a question. Why do you think we don't find out a great deal about the actuality of heaven? Jesus spoke an awful lot more about hell than he did about heaven. And I wonder whether these help us to understand why we don't hear an awful lot about heaven. Have you played taboo or Pictionary or Rapido or Charades? Basically, it's a, they're all games where you've got to try and communicate something, but in a restricted way. With taboo, you, there are some words you can't use. Pictionary, you can only communicate with pictures that you draw. Rapido, it's the same only with Play-Doh. And Charades, well, that's classic, isn't it? When, when communication is restricted, it's hard to get the message across. Do you remember one of the first weeks that we did a revelation? I asked you a question, which was, describe the taste of strawberry. You can't, can you? It's like this. It's like that. Describe heaven. Jesus couldn't put it into words, so he said, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he told parables, because we cannot comprehend or compute what, the, what heaven is like. It says, no eye has seen no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. This is Paul in Corinthians quoting Isaiah. These are the things that God has revealed to us by His Spirit. I've said before, and I'll say it again because I, I love this phrase, heaven is a different color. Go on, think of one. Anyone got a different color in their head that hasn't existed before? Heaven, God's presence is a different color. Even Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians. He says, I know a man who 14 years ago went into the third heaven. That was the way of understanding going into God's presence. And it says, and he saw things that are inexpressible. I can't explain what it's like. So maybe we just don't have the words to explain what God has prepared for each one of us. But I'll tell you one thing. It's an awful lot more than clouds and harps. Yeah? Maybe we don't hear a lot about it. It's because God knows that we're a bit choosy and a bit selfish. Do you remember Changing Rooms, the TV program Changing Rooms, where someone would get um, a troop of interior designers to come into their house and transform a room from you know, a, a drab, magnolia-filled cream suite into you know, purple, vibrant neon and leopard skin print and everything, yeah? And the best part of it, I find anyway, was when the couple would come in and they'd go, what do you think? And they'd go... Very nice. And you know, you know that as soon as the camera crew leaves, the magnolia paint is being whipped out. And to, you know that because they don't like it. 
I don't know about the traditional images of heaven. I do know that some of them actually make me go, I'm not entirely sure if I fancy that place. The idea maybe of sitting on a cloud, strumming shine, Jesus shine for the next billion years, I'm not sure whether I'm up for that. But the thing is, whatever it will be like, what will it be like? What will we do? What, who will be there? These are the questions we want. We'll actually like it there. Let me tell you something. It's going to be full of Christians. That might bless you or just send panic. <laughs> it's going to be good. It's going to be good. But actually, you know, in a serious point, I had a friend called Andrew when I was growing up. And I remember sitting in a car with him one night where he was telling me that he essentially he'd walked away in his faith. And the reason he'd walked away in his faith was because he could not handle the fact that his unbelieving, atheistic family and friends would not be with God. And because of that, he was walking away from his faith. For him, his family, his friends were more important than God. Maybe you don't like the thought of standing on a cloud singing, shine, Jesus, shine. That might say, I don't want to be there. I don't like the thought of this. I've read Revelation. I don't like the look of it. That's an idol. Anything that comes in between us and God is an idol. And if anything puts us off wanting to be in heaven, we're missing a point. And we're going to look at that in just a little bit more detail. Because we are given a brilliant, true description of heaven in this passage a new heaven, a new earth, joined together, not separated by sin. And it symbolized this joining together by the new Jerusalem. And Jerusalem comes down, a bride, radiant and ready for her wedding, the wife of the Lamb. And we're given these descriptions of what it will be like. And it doesn't look like this. It doesn't look like this city. It actually looks like a cube. Did you realize that when you read it? 12,000 stadia long, 12,000 stadia wide. It's as high as it's wide as it's long. And it's built on these lovely, beautiful, hard to pronounce, precious stones. That have you noticed what's precious here on earth in the new heaven and the new earth is commonplace. There's that story about a miser who on his deathbed asks God, can I, can I take my wealth with me? So he gets everything built. He, he buys loads and loads of gold um, bars and God says, all right, you can. So the guy comes to the pearly gates because that's what happens in heaven, doesn't it? Um, and he's got all this big sack of gold bars. And uh, Michael says, what are you doing there? He says, oh, I brought my treasure with me. So he says, I've got to go and ask the boss. So he goes to God and says, what's that about? He says, what do you mean, Michael? He says, well, this guy's got loads of paving slabs. <laughs> what's precious and rare on earth is commonplace in heaven. These stones are representative of the 12 stones that are on ephod of the high priest. And we hear that the gates have the names of the tribes of Israel, and the foundations are built on the names of the apostles. Now, if you know anything about the, about the story, the Christian story, both of those groups were pretty dubious. In fact, of 12 tribes, only two survived, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So 10 of them have disappeared, but yet it's one of the foundations. And the apostles, well, they were a mixed bag. What about if one of those foundation stones is Judas himself? Does that test your concept of grace? The city of God, New Jerusalem, heaven is built on the foundations of the prophets, the foundations of the apostles. 
Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. This is the people of God, the story of God's people. But it's a cube. I love this picture I'm going to show you, all right? And it can only be done in the States. Imagining a cube landing on earth, like Independence Day. A cube is not going to land on earth. But it's interesting, the size of it. It's about the size, about 1,500 miles long and wide. So the footprint is about the size of the Roman Empire, the then known world. That's before we go to the 1,500 miles, let's think about the 12,000 stadia. Because a cube, if you know anything about it, you know, it's got 12 sides, has a cube. I'm talking about lines. There are 12 lines, promise you. You can count them. And if each line is 12,000 stadia, 12 times 12,000 is what? 144,000. I've heard that number before somewhere. This bride of Christ, the city of God, this body of Christ is complete. It is full. It is enormous. It is big enough for God's people. But that's not even the key thing. It's not about gold or jewels or how shiny it is or the pearly gates. It's nothing about that. The thing that's important about this description is that there is no temple there. Jerusalem is well known for its temple. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world virtually. The temple isn't there. Why? Because the message is not about what heaven is like, where it is, regardless of location, 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 or about who's going to make it there, me and who else. All those concerns are for those who are outside the gates of the city. Those are idolatrous concerns because the biggest concern that we find out about this city of God, this new Jerusalem, this heaven on earth, is the key thing that we heard in the Ezekiel story as well. The name of it, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, the name that we bring out every Christmas. God with us is not just a title, but a promise. Emmanuel is a promise. I will be there. We want to know what heaven is like. Eugene Peterson sums it up brilliantly. Eternity is not perpetual future, but perpetual presence. That is heaven. That is the kingdom of heaven. Forget clouds. Forget harps. Forget who's there, what you'll be doing. It is about the perpetual presence of the living God. going to be like. And the psalmist captures this in Psalm 84. Better is one day in the courts of God than a thousand anywhere else. I don't care where we end up. I want to be where you are, God. I want to be where you are, regardless of what that looks like. It's the same message which is echoed through the entirety of Scripture. Do you know those kind of musicals or orchestrated pieces where there's a similar, there's one theme that keeps on appearing again and again throughout the entire symphony. And towards the end, it swells up to its majestic conclusion. Well, here we are hearing the repeated melody of the divine love song. And the melody of the divine love song sings this, I want you to be with me. That's what God says. That's the divine love song. I want you to be with me through the entirety of Scripture from Genesis to the Exodus, through the histories, through the prophets, through the coming of Jesus, through the, uh, the, the proliferation of the church and the gospel message in church history to today. The message is the same. 
I want you to be with me. And our response should be, I just want to be where you are. It's not about place. It's about presence. Which is why it is absolutely 100% true to say eternal life does not start when the soil hits the coffin. Eternal life starts in the here and now, right now, when you know Jesus. Eternal life starts now and goes on forever beyond death. Because somewhere else in Scripture it says, because your love is stronger than death. It will go on. I want you to notice something. So often we think, because of different understandings of millennialism, we think that Jesus is going to come back and it's going to be a beam me up Scotty moment, isn't it? Beam me up Scotty, whoa, we're up to heaven. Notice, in the end of time, where does heaven appear? Heaven comes to earth and they meet. Heaven and earth meet. Heaven comes to earth. I want us to... I want to do a little bit of a a journey now. I want us to go back to the beginning of Revelation. You can turn to it if you want. Genesis chapter 1, verse 4. It's the first herald of who this message is about. It says, grace and peace from the one who was, who is, and who is to come. The one who was and is and it's to come. Time doesn't matter. And then we go back to Genesis chapter 1, and that verse 1, and it says, in the beginning, even before time starts, before earth and moon and sun and all the seasons, before time starts, God. Before time, God. And then Moses needs to ask, well, what is your name? Who are you? And he says, Yahweh, I am. And the meaning of I am is I am, I was, I will be. I am, I was, I will be. We read Revelation chronologically, sequentially, and I hope over the weeks that we've done this, we've told you to stop doing that because this is a picture of eternity. Because God exists in eternity where there's no time. Where a moment lasts for a millennia and a millennia is gone in the blink of an eye. That's eternity. So this is God who was, who is, and is to come. Now we look back at the epilogue and we hear these words from Jesus. I am coming soon. And the words just say, I am making all things new. Well, let's think. Well, what does I am actually mean? It means I was, I am, I will be. So I am coming soon. What does that mean? It means I came. God came to earth. Heaven met earth for the one particular moment that started when the incarnation happened. And Jesus came. I came to you. I am coming to you. How do we experience God now? We experience God through His Holy Spirit from Pentecost onwards. We are experiencing the coming of God even now. And then we look forward to the coming when we will walk with the Father. I will come again. I'm making all things new. I am 
making all things new. If this is an eternity, then I've made all things new. That's the story of the cross and the resurrection, isn't it? The firstborn of the resurrected creation that can walk through walls but eat some fish. This is a body we recognize, but so much more besides. I have made something new. I am making things new. When you hear stories of people saying, my life has been transformed, and I will make things new. I have built a house or an extension of the house, and you're coming to be with me. It reflects that thing about I was saved as a boy. I am being saved as a man, and I will be saved from death and destruction on the last day. Heaven came to earth in the incarnation and the resurrection, Jesus' new creation, now promised for the entirety of the cosmos. Heaven will come to earth again and will mark the completion of God's story. But we live in the meantime, don't we? So what has this message got for us? Well, when someone said, Jesus, teach us to pray, he said, okay, pray this. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Was that just harking to the future, or was it now? In the light of a cross. You see, the thing is, Jesus said to his disciples, some of you will see the kingdom of heaven in all its glory even before you die. I used to have a problem with that verse. I went, but surely they died and you haven't come back yet. Until I realized, Jesus is the kingdom of heaven in here and now. The Holy Spirit is the kingdom of heaven continuously. And it's a promise and a foretaste and a guarantee of the kingdom of heaven coming in all its fullness. So his disciples did see the kingdom of heaven arrive. It's already started. And we are part of that making all things new. Some of my favorite um, theologians are, are Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth. I really love those guys. And there's, if you read some of their stuff about eschatology, which is the end times, study of the end times, Kind of when you paraphrase it, what particularly Bonhoeffer talks about is that our job as Christ's body here on earth is to make earth so much like heaven that when heaven comes in its entirety, there's little difference. That's our job. That's our job. To bring heaven to earth. You know the Andy Flanagan song. It's a prophetic song. Bring heaven to earth, Lord. That's our prayer. So that when the kingdom of God comes, when the king of kings returns, there is little difference between his new Jerusalem and the earth that we've been here working in. Jesus said, when you give someone a cup of water, you're doing it in my name. Both a physical cup of water, and then we read also, come and drink if you're thirsty from the water of life. Whenever we hear of... Um, a builder or an electrician who's being told that you can come and receive this good news and they decide to respond, hallelujah, there is heaven born on earth. We heard the story Ruth shared about one of her clients. We'll hear more stories like that where they just are excited. They have a new start. There, the kingdom of heaven is new. He is making all things new even as we witness it. That's why heaven is not just a city or a bride made of bricks of gold. But we read a bit further on that there's a river. There's a tree. There's a garden. And it's not a location of place, but a location of presence. And it's more real than anything we've experienced ever. Way, way back in Genesis, we 
started walking with God in the garden before it all got spoiled. We will walk again in the garden, the perfect garden forever, where every tear will be wiped away. Not automatically, but personally, by God, face to face. Each one of our tears. And I think that isn't just, come on, wipe your tears and get over it. I think that's God saying, I will explain every tear that you have shed and I will wipe it away because there will be no more mourning, because there will be no more death. I will personally wipe away every tear. We walk face to face in the presence of God. Bring heaven to earth, Lord. And that is the happy ever after. Isn't it? That's the happy ever after. Where reality is revealed. There's a great song, which we might be singing, I don't know, it's not a hint. It says, I can only imagine what it will be like. And the reason why is because we live in a distorted reality. That's why this, this series has been so prophetically titled, not by us, but by God. It was His idea. Reality is revealed. His reality is revealed. And it's more real than we can possibly imagine. Do you know when TVs first came out, they had those kind of big black and white tubes that kind of took up a room, and you had to turn it on for days before you got a picture, and it was black and white, and then that was taken over by color TV with four channels, and then eventually it was, you had to get up and turn them, and then you had remote controls, and then it was no longer that, it was CRTs, whatever they are, and then it was like LED TVs and, and plasma TVs, and then it was widescreen, small screen um, phones, and then they become really ultra-high definition TVs, 4K OLED TVs that actually surround the entire room. It's 3D, totally immersive, all trying to get the same effect as looking out the window. (laughs) Trying to depict reality when actually reality is something so much more. 1 Corinthians 13, such a familiar passage. Paul says, we see now, almost through a mirror, darkly, dimly. If you know anything about archaeology, Roman mirrors were just polished bits of of metal. So when you looked at it, you kind of saw yourself, but it was a bit blurry, a bit bit mixed. So enough to fix your hair, but not to new. Do whatever else. Makeup, I suppose. We see a distorted image, but then we will see clearly. We will know fully. It'll make sense. It'll be more real. You will be more you than you have ever been. A blade of grass will be more a blade of grass than it has ever been. A lamb frolicking in the glade will be more frolicking than ever it has been. It will be more than we can possibly hope for or imagine. But all we've got is our imagination. And so, I'd like to finish with a story. Is that okay? Clearly not. Is that okay? Okay. Are you sitting comfortably? Convincing. (laughs) Come on, sit comfortably. Great. Then we'll begin. (sighs) Lucy looked hard at the garden and saw that it was not really a garden, but a whole world with its own rivers and woods and seas and mountains. But they were not strange. She knew them all. This is still Narnia, but more real and more beautiful than the Narnia before. It's more real and more beautiful than the Narnia outside the stable. I see the world within the world. Yes, said Mr. Tumnus, like an onion. 
except that as you go in and in, the circle is larger than the last. And then she could see. Whatever she looked at, however far away, was like looking through a telescope. She could see the entirety of Narnia, all the way to Aslan's country. And then she saw what looked like a cloud, but it wasn't a cloud. It was a real hand. And she fixed her eyes, and she realized, why, Peter? It's England, and that's the house itself, Professor Kirk's old home. I thought it had been destroyed. And so it was, said the fawn. But you are now looking at the England within England, the real England, just as this is the real Narnia. And in that inner England, no good thing is destroyed. The light ahead was growing stronger, and Lucy could see a great series of many-colored cliffs led up in front of them like a giant staircase. And then she forgot everything else, because Aslan himself was coming, leaping down from cliff to cliff like a living cataract of power and beauty. Then Aslan turned to them and said, you do not look as happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you've sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt with wild hope within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan. Your father and your mother and all of you are as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them down. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And at the end of every story, we say, the, but it's not. This is just the beginning.